0: Hello, and welcome to episode 5 of Unfinished, Shubury's Lost Boys. At the beginning of this series, we heard how my interest in the Shubury paedophile ring case had begun in 2015, when former NHS manager Robin Jamieson had walked into the Yellow Advertiser's office and asked me to investigate. Robin's own involvement in the case had begun around the time Dennis King and his accomplice Brian Tanner were sentenced, the Southend Health Authority was one of several agencies asked to join Essex Council's multi-agency response. Here's a reminder of what Robin told me at the very beginning of my investigation.
1: I knew there was a huge problem in child protection in South End in 1990, which wasn't properly investigated by the police and was covered up by social services.
0: Robin had been clear from the outset that he felt the official failings extended beyond the police. In this episode, we'll hear how efforts to secure aftercare for the victims were frustrated time and again by bureaucracy and internal politics, with deadly consequences for some of Shrewsbury's lost boys. Schoolboys as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring, a court was told
2: yesterday. Police investigating a child sex ring in Southend have uncovered a link to a notorious London paedophile gang. Essex local newspaper The Yellow Advertiser's tenacity yielded some astonishing results. Essex police have
3: announced a review of the facts of the case, and they're appealing for victims to come forward.
0: One of Robin's staff psychologists was appointed to sit on the multi-agency group considering aftercare for the victims. Although she declined to be named or interviewed, she was a meticulous note-taker and record-keeper and I was allowed access to her paperwork. Her records, along with files held by other sources, provided a comprehensive timeline of the events that unfolded in the aftermath of the sentencing. By May 21, 1990, just ten days after King and Tanner were jailed, Robin's colleague had already identified a problem. The therapy was only being offered to the handful of boys who'd formed the basis of the two men's specimen charges not the dozens of victims whose abuse had been acknowledged in the court hearings. Only six boys would be offered a service. Rob West worked for the Rayner Project, a youth justice scheme which helped uncover the ring and provided support to a number of the boys. He said part of the problem was that the children were not case-conferenced by social services as they should have been. A case conference is a formal meeting between official agencies to agree on an appropriate course of action to help a child in crisis. Until they had been case conferenced, the boys were not formally considered victims and therefore were not eligible to receive intervention.
4: Even boys that were in court with me could not be case conferenced, could not be seen as children in need, protected in formal ways. Therefore, we could have got the funding for counselling. So at best, sometimes all that they were left with was talking to me.
0: Surviving paperwork corroborates Rob West's memory. The first multi-agency meeting called by Essex Council was in June 1989, where attendees heard that there were now 14 known victims. But here's an excerpt from the minutes of a meeting nine months later, in March 1990, between the charities brought in to counsel the victims.
3: One child case conferenced. Why others not case conferenced under child protection procedures? Social services asked on at least three occasions. Essex procedures clearly state that all 14 children should be case conferenced.
4: Essex in disarray.
0: Chris Hickey, who was Rob's manager at the Rainer Project, said his experiences of social services in Essex have been poor throughout his time working in the county.
3: We had real concerns about individuals in in the social services department. I mean, the best description of their behaviour, the most generous and least offensive would be unprofessional. They seemed spectacularly poor at uh, doing what the basic job is. It's an interesting relationship the Rayner Foundation had with them because Essex County Council paid for us, they paid for our service, they were paying for us to do our job. And they were paying for us because we were a leading edge, cutting edge organisation with a fantastic reputation, as was the Children's Society, as was the NSPCC. So in Southend, they had three highly professional, well-resourced by social services, organisations full of committed people working at the cutting edge of services to young people. And yet, They had this, as I said, this kind of fractured relationship with us where they were paying for us, but not listening to us, which is kind of
0: weird, you know. Chris Hickey felt that the three charities' work with young offenders had led social services to consider them a nuisance. Whereas young offenders had once just been brought before the court, sent to prison, and that was the matter done with, The Rayner Project and other charities were offering counselling to young offenders, attempting to get to the root cause of their unruly behaviour. This inevitably generated work for social services.
3: And so we're saying, look, don't
0: send this kid to prison,
3: provide some help and support for his family, do some counselling to prevent domestic violence. And I know at times, and I, I have this image that they may well have perceived us as kind of a yapping little annoying terriers because we're constantly bringing to their attention work that they should be doing, right? Standard, ordinary, everyday, or garden, social work. And we were bringing this to them and they weren't doing it. So that's the normal everyday. So then we start talking about a sex ring and organised
0: sexual abuse and this, these monstrous activities the shut their ears to it and ignored it. According to Jenny Grinstead, part of the problem in Essex was an under-resourced and disorganised service. Jenny had spent her early career as an Essex council social worker before moving into the charity sector. When she returned as a Children's Society contractor in 1989 to help organise the shrewsbury response, she said she found the department in chaos. Essex Social Services was being restructured from individual areas into groups of areas. The scheme was causing great upheaval, which acted as a deterrent to people seeking work there. The service was so understaffed, she said, that it recruited unqualified people who might have been rejected under other circumstances, and also retained people whose behaviour might have spelled the end of their employment elsewhere.
5: There were child protection Referrals made that were not responded to. There were allegations about staff members, that it appeared that nothing was being done. In all, it seemed like um, a mess, a chaos. Mm -hmm. You didn't know who trusted whom. The social workers were very run down and, and fed up because they didn't know who they
0: could trust. In 2016, in response to the Yellow Advertiser's investigation, Essex Council said that it was aware of historic allegations against members of staff and that it urged anybody with information to come forward to the police. By April 1990, a year after the police investigation began, child victims interviewed by the charities had named many other children they'd seen with the paedophiles. The list of suspected victims now exceeded 50. Yet even the majority of the initial 14 victims had still not been case-conferenced. Here's Chris Hickey reading an excerpt from a letter he sent to his boss that month.
3: I believe one of the first questions to ask is why the social services department did not case conference all the young people under 16. It also states in Essex County Council guidelines on child abuse that where any agency or person has a suspicion that child sex abuse has taken place, a case conference should be called within seven days. To date, the only work undertaken with any of the survivors of the sex ring has been done by ourselves, the Children's Society and the NSPCC, apart from one young person.
0: In September 1990, following persistent concerns raised by charity workers, Essex Council held a day-long event at a building called Freight House in Rochford. According to one account of that meeting, written by the head teacher of Shoebury Comprehensive School, Liz
5: Talmadge, the day focused largely on discussion about the apparent failure of social services to address the specific problem of child abuse in the Shubriness area, as perpetrated by those involved in the Shoebury sex ring. Shoebury Comprehensive School pupils, known to have been involved in this affair, had received no support.
0: Robin Jamieson's psychologist colleague attended the Freight House meeting and took notes. Rather than committing to writing the wrongs which had occurred to date, Her notes recorded a social services manager reiterating that there was, quote, no action and no need for action on the list of 50 victims. But social services did agree to yet another series of multi-agency meetings. These would apparently focus on identifying shortcomings by social services in the Shubury case, with a view to informing future policy. They would be chaired by Liz Talmadge, head teacher of the school that many of the victims attended and some of the charity workers would be invited. Here's Mr X.
2: Social services were very frantic to take control of the situation. It was getting out of hand from their perspective, because for some strange reason, they seemed impotent to do anything. They were almost sort of like denying that kids had been abused. The kids never got any meaningful intervention from them at all, and I think at the time there was an effort to control the situation. There was this sort of like power game type stuff going on. It was like a gatekeeping exercise to risk manage our behaviour as well as risk manage their expenditure. I think they were aware that they hadn't done what they should have been doing and I'm pretty sure that they had come from a similar view to the old bill which was, these kids are criminals anyway, you know? They're rent boys. They get paid, don't they? That was the view that pervaded. Sad and sick, really.
0: On Tuesday, October the 2nd, 1990, just a few days after the freight house meeting, Robin and his colleague bumped into a county councillor when they attended a meeting at an Essex council building. Councillor Kay Twitchin represented Thorpe Bay, next to Shoebury, and was involved with children's services. She asked for their views on how the service was running. Robin's colleague wrote notes of that chance meeting. Here's an excerpt in
5: response to councillor's inquiry and invitation to comment we tell her of our concern at the way child protection work is carried out by social services that there is an absence of maturation or intention to investigate the extent of abuse of children to keep his manager in the loop
0: robin wrote him a letter outlining the same concerns he'd raised with councillor Twitchin. this letter would set in motion a bizarre chain of events here's robin
1: his immediate reaction was to come to me and say, I should withdraw the letter because you're making serious allegations against people and their careers are at stake. And I said, well, these are serious matters and people's lives are at stake uh, and it needs to be dealt with. It needs to be talked about.
0: On November 9th, 1990, Robin and his colleague were called into a meeting.
1: And when we came there into the room, the social services manager was there as well, much to my surprise and that we're both demanding that I withdraw my letter and apologise.
0: Robin's colleague wrote notes of this meeting. They described the social services manager as angry, threatening and abusive, and say he accused Robin and his colleague of being devious by speaking to councillor Twitchin. He claimed Robin's letter was libelous and accused the pair of being ill-informed and having no evidence to back up their concerns, which they strongly disputed.
1: And the response of the manager was quite interesting. He, he went sort of purple and flew into a rage. And that's the first thing. I'm a district psychologist with a colleague, got every right to access my concerns. And I thought, if he flies into a rage like that against me, how does he respond to junior staff within his own system? What sort of manager is he?
0: The following week, the pair were called into another meeting, this time with a manager from the health service.
1: I was threatened with disciplinary procedures. I was also threatened that I would be reported to the police, but I don't quite know what the charge would be. There wasn't
0: any indication of that. Robin's recollection is corroborated once again by notes of this meeting taken by his colleague.
5: The manager wanted Robin to either withdraw his letter or it would be sent to the police. Robin and I tried to understand slash queried why the letter should have any reason to go to the police. He said Robin and I should consult our professional bodies and mention professional misconduct on Robin's part.
0: At around this time, Robin also suddenly found himself banished from regular multidisciplinary meetings he'd previously sat on to discuss child protection issues in the South End area.
1: I had it in my diary for a meeting in Raleigh, so I just went to the meeting as usual and I found that the doors to the corridor were locked. I could normally would have walked straight into the room. There was the door locked in the way, but being a runner, I just ran up and down the stairs and round the building and found a way in. I came to the room, and the person chairing the meeting, it was a, a social worker, said, you're not invited. So I'd been expelled from the Child Protection Committee for, for trying to protect children, basically.
0: When I attempted to obtain minutes from the meetings of this committee, I was told they could not be found. When Robin submitted a subject access request to the council, a legal process compelling an organisation to hand over all of the data it holds on a person, the council responded by telling Robin that due to the nature and volume of information it held about him, it would need extra time to handle his request. In later correspondence, it performed a spectacular U-turn, backtracking and claiming that in fact, it didn't hold any information about Robin at all. By February 1991, Robin's colleague had decided to withdraw from the Shubury response altogether, saying she could not, in good conscience, continue to raise the hopes of the victims when she believed that no service would ever materialize. That same month, the multi agency meetings chaired by Shubury Comprehensive School head teacher Liz Talmadge ended. She submitted a scathing final report to social services in which she said the good intentions of the charity workers, the health workers and others, had been thwarted by the failure of those in power to properly fund or facilitate their proposals. Here is an excerpt
5: from her withering judgement. The senior managers group have, to my knowledge, made no attempt to date to follow through the work of the working party. The pity of this is that by the time this final report is read by those in the senior managers group, it will be too late for most of the children affected by the activities of the Shubri sex ring. I am saddened by what I consider to be the dismissive manner in which social services and education have treated this entire matter. Those with the power to mobilise resources have had no active involvement and thus the resources have not been found to deal with the massive emotional problems of the young people abused. Only when they offend or are once again offended against will they come to the attention of those who might have stepped in much, much earlier and taken the appropriate steps to ensure that this did not happen.
0: After the Shubury case wound up, said Rob West, the charity workers found they lived with the consequences for many years.
4: Some of us lost our credibility as professionals and some of us, though we didn't maybe lose our credibility, we lost momentum in our careers. There were things that happened to our careers that are unexplainable. Funding being cut almost immediately following this. So we speak out, bang, not getting funding next year.
0: Around six months after Liz Talmage's damning report, three of the charity workers organised a training day for child protection workers called Rings, Networks and Strangers. The same social services manager who had threatened Robin and his colleague circulated a memo to all of his staff. It said, I personally have the greatest reservations about these three professionals. No one from my team will be allowed time off to attend or have their course fees or expenses paid. I wanted you to know that I have the most serious reservations about their behaviour and performance in the arena of child sexual abuse. One of those three charity workers was Jenny Grinstead, who took union action over that memo and what she alleged was a wider effort to prevent her from securing work in Essex. In late 1991, her union wrote to social services to say evidence had been received from more than ten witnesses, including council staff, that orders had been given to block Jenny from gaining further contracts with either the council or the health authority. She pursued her case for more than two years, until the manager behind the memo was eventually forced to relent and circulate a new memo, praising her abilities. By the time she won her victory, Essex Social Services had received a bad report of its own, from government inspectors. In 1993, the Social Services Inspectorate visited the Essex Department for the first time since 1986. The resulting report echoed many of the criticisms levelled at the service by those who'd worked on the Shubury case.
2: The authority needs to deal with the issues arising from unqualified social workers working with child protection cases. A lack of strategic approach to the deployment of qualified and unqualified workers is a serious matter.
0: The inspectors found some child protection referrals were not acted on for months. They studied 19 recent cases and found that roughly a third of them were not properly dealt with. The report specifically mentioned weaknesses in the organisation of case conferences and made a series of recommendations.
2: Department to ensure that all investigations are timely and that systems are developed to ensure cases requiring action do not slip through the cracks.
0: The inspection found that more children in South End were referred to social services for sexual abuse than for any other reason. Abuse victims accounted for more than a third of the areas looked after children. South End had the highest proportion of sexually abused children anywhere in the county, but despite these shocking figures, each of the charities which had worked with the Shubury victims lost its public funding to continue operating in the area. Here's charity worker Mr X.
2: We all got chucked out of Southend. It was entirely suspicious. We used to talk about being picked off one by one, like whose turn was it next to be made redundant?
0: Here's some more from Chris Hickey from the Rainer Project.
3: I moved. So the effect on me directly... You know, once I stopped being in Essex, once I stopped being in Southend, once I stopped being connected with the project, I was out of their range and radar. But there is no doubt that the others involved and engaged had their careers marked,
0: had their cards marked. So, there were professional consequences for those who stood up for the victims. But what were the consequences for the victims themselves? What were the consequences of these abused children not receiving the proper aftercare? Here's a comment Rob West made in one of our first interviews in 2016.
4: I still see them from time to time. I've, I've seen a few of them at funerals of some of the guys that are now dead that we worked with.
0: Robin told me how in the years following the Shubury case, he noticed some of the victims being referred to his psychology department as grown men, but by that point, they were almost beyond help
1: they were coming forward and being seen by some of my colleagues and more and more aware over the years that a proportion of them were beginning to show, well, to be quite damaged. They could be very angry. If they were angry against themselves, they were cutting their wrists. If they're angry against other people, they were becoming quite violent and getting involved in crime. And there were also people who just seemed to drift into petty crime and with no apparent motive and to get caught every time. We became aware that these are the people today who are probably homeless in Southend. Their life never really recovered. One in particular I remember was a young man who came in who was fully grown adult but behaved like a really tiny child and came in giggling and wearing shorts and came up the chase on a a skateboard and seemed to think it was all great fun but his, his life had been terribly damaged. We know quite a lot about his background, but he hasn't come forward because someone like that isn't capable of coming forward and campaigning for, for survivors. He's, just a, he's not really capable of living his own life.
0: Of the victims I've been able to trace, some, thankfully, went on to live relatively normal lives, holding down jobs and raising families. Others, however, did not. At least two died of heroin overdoses. I heard of others who died the same way, but had insufficient detail to verify. Another victim took his own life by shooting himself in the head. Several have lived criminal lives, spending a lot of time in prison. One is detained indefinitely in a high-security psychiatric ward. Others are drug addicts, or living on the streets. All of these lives destroyed. How might they have fared, if only they had received professional intervention. In one of my interviews with Chris Hickey, he reflected on the long-lasting effects of the Shubury case for both the child victims and the adults who worked with them.
3: Of all the things that I've done in my life, I'm proudest of the four and a half, five years I worked in the Rainer Foundation in South End, still. Even with this, because even, you know, even though this was a, a terrible outcome, I can put my hand on my heart and I can say I really did everything I could and we did everything we could and I worked with an extraordinary group of people who worked at the foundation and every three years wherever we are in the country we get together for a weekend and our friendship and our bonds created by that work experience have endured throughout time and every single time that we meet I would say a third of that time We catch up on what we know about the boys who are now men. And all of us are scarred by it. And all of us have spent the last 25, 30 years saying, could we have done anything else? What else could we have done? How could it have been different? And and what we say is, is there anything we can do now? And a couple of people are still scared. So it's a little bit easier for me because I live in Gloucestershire. I don't live in Essex anymore but most of the others live in and around Essex. And a couple of them were so traumatized by the threats and the implications of we know who you are and where you live. And even though we've nearly all retired now, still it's cast a shadow over our lives. It's cast a shadow over our lives. And we feel such empathy for those children. And we're angry, we're still angry. That's why I said when you rang me, I was just delighted you to hear you speaking to me and thinking, well, OK, maybe the time has come for something to be done. Maybe the truth is going to come out now.
0: In spring 2016, just over a year after I began looking into Robin's story, the Essex Police Commissioner, Nick Austin called me to his office. He wanted to give a statement about my investigation.
1: We're uh, announcing today that Essex Police is going to be looking again, reviewing uh, what happened uh, to an investigation that followed a really serious, um, some really serious offences back in Shrewbyness, actually, uh, in the late 80s. It's clear from people that you've put us in contact with uh, that at the time many professionals who were working with those um, victims were concerned that that investigation wasn't sufficiently rigorous. And and we're announcing that there is going to be um, that review of what happened. The Chief Constable and Essex Police will look at that. And we're also going to be asking anybody who might have been a victim of abuse at that time in the late 80s, the early
0: 90s, to come forward. Maybe the truth is going to come out now, Chris had said. Maybe it would. In the next episode, we'll look at what happened when police opened a new investigation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished. It was written by me, Charles Thompson, and edited by Tom Bristow. If you'd like to support our work, please visit presspatroncom forward slash unfinishedpodcast.html. All money raised will help fund the costs of future episodes. If you found this episode interesting, please leave us a review on your podcast provider, or mention it to a friend. Thank you.
2: From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant.